Dear God, thank you for each person that's here today. We know that that is not an accident, that you have something for them. We invite your Holy Spirit to do his work among us, to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to comfort. And Lord, we just pray that as we open up uh, these encounters with your son, that we would have an encounter with your son and that we would be led by you and that your wisdom would permeate us as we go through a dark culture. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we are going to look at two stories. It's a pretty big section of Scripture, and we're going to hit it from, you know, kind of just the heights. We're going to kind of pass over it and just look at a few things. Uh, But I think there's value in looking at these two encounters with Jesus together. And so I'm going to read you the first encounter. It's John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. This is a story about Nicodemus, who is like on their Supreme Court. He is a pillar of the community. He's a teacher of Israel. He is a, you know, a moral, religious leader. And he meets with Jesus. And then the, the next encounter, we're actually going to watch a video. Um, it's called the Visual Bible, which if you're not aware of that, it's a wonderful resource. And basically they do, you know, they'll take a translation of the Bible and they'll just dramatize it. And it's word for word. And they have, you know, all four gospels and they have the book of Acts. And some, you know, I meet people all the time that don't love to read. And they're like, ah, oh, well, you know, we live in a beautiful age. There's the audio Bible, there's the visual Bible, so you can get a lot of biblical content and not have to be a big reader. So I'm going to read this, this particular passage, John 3, 1 through 18, and then we're going to watch uh, the encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. All right, here we go. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So he takes Jesus very, like, physically, literally, And Jesus is like, really? Come on. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So he's talking about the physical wind, but kind of using it as an image of the Holy Spirit and the work that he does Um, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus referring to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's a reference to an Old Testament story where snakes went into the camp because of their wickedness and they're poisonous and they're biting people. People were dying and God gave them one way to escape that death from the poison. And, you know, so... 
Moses took an image of, a, of the serpent and, and lifted it up on a pole and they had to look by faith and they would be saved from that. So it's, a, it's an image, it's kind of a precursor in a sense of the cross and Jesus being lifted up on the cross. That's kind of the, the image that's happening. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 13, uh, 16, this is the one that even if you don't have a church background, you may know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So that's the interaction with Nicodemus at night, this religious leader who didn't want to acknowledge, didn't want anybody to see him, that he had questions for Jesus, that he was interested in Jesus because Jesus was controversial. Um, it did require some humility, I think, on the part of Nicodemus because he was this learned man to come to Jesus who was viewed as from backwater Nazareth, Galilee area, and to call him rabbi. But still, notice he's protecting his reputation. And so this this I think in some ways, proud man, successful man, respected man, comes to Jesus for spiritual insight. And now kind of the other end of the spectrum, at least in their cultural viewpoint, is the story we're going to hear about, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, and it starts and it'll fairly quickly get to uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Let's watch. Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. 
Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is. Offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit. And only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, what do you want? Or asked him, why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the town. Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left the town and went to Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus' teacher, have something to eat. But he answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking among themselves, could somebody have brought him food? My food is to obey the will of the one who sent me and to finish the work he gave me to do. You have a saying, four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. So the one who plants and the one who reaps will be glad together. For the saying is true. Someone plants, someone else reaps. I have sent you to reap the harvest in a field where you did not work. Others work there. And you profit from their work. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they begged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his message, and they told the woman, We believe now, not because of what you said, but because we ourselves have heard him and we know that he really is the savior of the world. All right. Well, thank you for hanging in there. I know it's a large block of text, but I do think there's value in looking at them together. So when we look at this passage or any passage in the Bible, I like to ask, what does, what does this story or this passage tell us 
about Jesus. And there's a lot, uh, but I think it's helpful to think about the fact, what does Jesus see when he looks at people, when he looks at this world and he sees people? I think what rises to the front of his mind is whether a person is lost or saved. I think that is what is critical. You know, we might, when we look at somebody, we might think about, I don't know, their occupation, or, you know, maybe they're wearing something that shows a political allegiance, or whatever it might be. But I think that Jesus, when he looks at people, he is concerned, passionately concerned about lost people. He wants all of us to come to him. And so when we look at this particular passage, we see that Jesus went to great lengths to save lost people. We see that in John 3, 2, in his getting together with this famous rabbi, this famous leader among Israel, notice that it's at night. And it's at night to protect, as I said earlier, Nicodemus's reputation so he could explore. You know, Jesus does the inconvenient so that he can plant some seed. Now, at least initially, Nicodemus doesn't commit to Christ. We do see hints that he does later in the Gospels, but initially we don't, we don't really see that. We just see a, a, an openness and a conversation. But Jesus makes the time. Jesus comes, you know, they, they get together, and he makes sure that this happens. And then think about the journey that Jesus took to get there for Nicodemus. You know, he was God the Son. He was in heaven. He was being worshipped. He enjoyed the beauty of the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he set aside the prerogatives of deity to take on flesh, we talked about this, that, and to become like us, to live a fully human life. And he came in part because Nicodemus was lost. And because you were lost. And because I was lost without what God would do for us. We could not initiate our own salvation. We could not build the bridge back to God. Only God could build that bridge. And then when you look at our text in John chapter 4, verse 4, and it'd be easy to blow past this, but he's, you know, we're talking about seeing the Samaritan woman. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now understand, the Jews hated the Samaritans. There's a lot of history there. Um, there was a split in the kingdoms, um, and the, you know, there was the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom stuck with the family of David. The northern kingdom became apostate quite quickly. They mixed in all kinds of paganism. They set up another place of worship. When there was the great exile and the Jewish people, most of them were taken and dragged off to Babylon, some Jews stayed and they intermarried and mingled with the pagans in the area. And so they, in, they kind of got rid of their national identity. And they also took the pagan ideas and wove them in with their Judaism. And so they were viewed as heretics by the Jewish people. And so the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. And so if a Jew had to go somewhere and the most direct path was to go through Samaria, he went all the way around Samaria. That was the bad neighborhood. But Jesus very specifically goes there, I think, to meet this woman. I think to share who he is with her. 
I think, to have an impact on that particular village. Jesus will go to great lengths to reach lost people. He, with this woman, he stretched over, he reached across a racial barrier, a gender barrier. A rabbi would not typically talk to a woman in public in that ancient culture. There was a moral barrier. She was viewed as an outcast even in her own village, among her own people. Uh, She was one, you notice she's there at the well at noon or in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. That's not when women came to the well. They came in the early morning. They came when it was not as hot and they got the water for the day. She intentionally came when other women wouldn't be there because she was an outcast among her own people. She was a moral outcast. Jesus reached across all these barriers to reach her and help her and to save her. And so it is, a, it is an amazing thing when we think about what Jesus did to reach lost people, to reach us, and those that maybe we might think are unlikely. I was reading um, about a woman who uh, spent 25 years as a prostitute. Her name was Brenda Myers Powell in Chicago, Illinois. And she was raised by her alcoholic grandmother. And when she was 14, she was sent out to try to make some money to get some grocery money, and she prostituted herself and spent the next 25 years in that horrific, difficult, painful occupation being used by men just to survive. And at one point, finally, there was, um, there was one of her clients, customers, whatever you want to call them, and she got out of the car and, you know, the, the door was slammed and it caught her, her dress, and apparently it was pretty strong material, and he took off, and it dragged her for a bit. And it, so it, it took some skin off her back and her face, and it really hurt her. She goes to the, you know, they take her to the hospital. She's in the hospital, and she hears a policeman who was involved in the whole thing say, I know who this is. She's just a hooker, you know, and just kind of pushed her to the back of the line, and the nurses were laughing about it. And You know, no one was even really going to help her, at least for a bit. But this one doctor stepped in, he did treat her, and he did get a social worker involved in her life. They pointed her to a Christian ministry called the Genesis House, which was an opportunity, um, and they helped, they came alongside women that were in this kind of occupation and in this kind of mess, and they helped her to get her life, a new life, a better life. She came to Christ. She ended up founding a ministry that worked with women who um, were in prostitution and helped them to change and to grow. And you see these people that are like a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You see a radical, incredible change, transformation through Jesus Christ and his ministry. And so if we're followers of Jesus, if his heart is for the lost, if he will go any distance, if he will go any direction, if he will reach across lines in order to try to share the good news of who he is, his life and his death and his resurrection and the confidence and certainty we can have that our sins are forgiven and that we can have forever in heaven with him. If he cares about lost people, we need to care about lost people. That needs to be a mark of who we are as a people. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? 
When was the last time you even attempted a spiritual conversation with someone? I think we're pretty shy about this. As a church, we try to work at this. I just talked about a you know, barbecue thing, and I don't know if it'll work or not, but we're going to try. I look back at our history, and we've had booths at the, at the street fairs downtown, whether it's Midnight Sun or Golden Days. We've had a booth at the fair, and the fair is like 10 days long, 10-hour days, and volunteers staff that, and some of our staff do that, and we have interactions, and we try to go where people are. One of my favorite things, and we did this a few times, was um, we got to know the owner of the Silver Spur. It was a country bar at the time, and uh, we got to know this guy. Uh, I heard a rumor that he had become a Christian, so I went to see him, and, and he had. And before he sold the bar and got out, I thought, well, let's, let's try to use this. And so we had events there at the bar, and we had uh, H2O. It was a video study that was aimed at non-Christians. We brought in a, a Christian comedian and did a clean comedy night. We did that a couple different times. One of my favorites was a guy who came in, and we did the comedy night at the bar. And at the time, we were in the Regal Movie Theater. And so we announced, hey, you know, he's gonna, the comedian's going to share his testimony, what Christ has done in his life the next morning, you know, come to the movie theater. And so um, we packed out this country western bar, and uh, the next day we had five people say, I want to follow Christ, and we baptized him into Christ. And that was, that was fun. That was exciting. That's living on mission. And so as a church, we try to reach out. We have a team that we sent to Nicaragua. That was the last time we included teenagers in a short-term mission team. We have a short-term mission team that's going to go to Kenya here soon. And so that's exciting. And so we're always trying to figure out how can we live on mission if Jesus cares about the loss, we must care about the loss because every single one of us at one time or another was lost. We all need the gospel. I love John 3.17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that, you know, as I talked about the incarnation, that's sending a Son into the world. That's taking on flesh, setting aside the prerogatives of deity. All of that to save us, to reach us, to change us, to transform us, to give us an abundant life here and an eternal life forever. It is remarkable. I appreciate a song that's been out for a while by Corey Asbury called Reckless Love, and it talks about the pursuing love of God. Here's some of the lines. It says, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lies you won't tear down coming after me. Jesus told parables of you know, a lost coin and a woman tore apart her house to find that lost coin. A shepherd who lost one of the sheep, one of the sheep wandered off and he left the 99 in a safe place and he went off and got the one sheep, which may not seem practical, may not even seem wise unless you're that sheep, right? And so we want to have this heart that Jesus has for the mission of reaching the lost. He summarizes his mission in Luke 19, verse 10. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. And we do it in different ways. One of the most freeing things for me um, as a young man was I read a book and it was on evangelism. And it, it kind of walked you through 
different ways to do evangelism. And I was like, oh, there's different styles, and I don't have to be the guy who knocks on the door, and, and you know, they answer, and you say, so if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? That, that is not me. Not going to happen. But there are different styles of evangelism. Um, there's kind of the confrontational style or the direct style. That's Peter at Pentecost. So all these Jews from around the world have come for the feast at Pentecost, and Peter gets up and says, look, you know that Messiah we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years? You killed him. That's direct. No, no soft pedal in that. That's direct. And, and, so, and then he tells them to call on the name of the Lord, to repent, to be baptized. He tells them these things. He's very direct with them. And so... We see, we see kind of the direct style. We also see the testimonial style. And no one could really argue with the testimonial style. This is just sharing what has Christ done in your life? A dramatic example is John chapter 9, the blind man who they had called him in, some of the officials, and they're like, hey, you know, tell us about Jesus and who he is and all this. He's like, I don't know. All I know, I was blind and now I see. No one can argue with your story. Have you ever written down your story? What has Christ done in your life? How has it made a difference? And I would encourage you to do that. Just think through your story, your testimony, your unique. How has God stepped in and helped you? And, and then kind of, you know, just break it in some pieces. Because if somebody is not a Christian and they show some interest... I would not advise that you back up the whole truck and unload everything. You know, when I was six years old, and then just, you know, I'm, now I'm 54, and, you know, three hours later, they're just like, really? Don't do that. But you know what? If I'm talking to somebody and they have some intellectual doubts, I'll say, you know what? I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I was in college at Taylor University getting a business degree, and as I was Doing that, it, it just hit me, well, what if I'd been born in a good Muslim home or a good Mormon home or a good Hindu home? Wouldn't I just be that? And it really bothered me, and I wrestled with that, and I dug into I read books and articles about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I read apologetics works. And at the end of that process, even though I'd been a Christian for a long time, I walked out of that season as a college student saying, as sure as I'm standing here, I believe Jesus Christ predicted his own death, died on a cross, and walked out of his own grave. I believe that. I believe that. Now, how long did that take me to tell you that little chunk of my story? So just take your big story and cut it in little chunks. Think about a time he answered a prayer dramatically. Even if, even if the answer was no. Because if you've had some time to reflect on it, often you'll understand why. Look at your most painful moments in life and how was God there for you in that. Write these moments down. That testimonial style is powerful. The intellectual style, I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. Here he is talking to the philosophers in Athens. And he shows up and he's talking to them and he's wandered around Athens. He's seen all these idols to all these different gods. So he actually took the time to listen to them. 
That's powerful. He took the time to see them. And then he says, I found this one statue that said to an unknown God, and I'm here to tell you about Jesus Christ, the unknown God. Now, my understanding of the history of that statue, according to one source I read, that before that, and it had been decades before that, they had gone through a plague. They had gone through this terrible, some disease had, had killed a bunch of people in town, and they had cried out to all their different gods. Nothing happened, nothing stopped it, and people kept dying, and finally they decided, let's, let's pray to the creator. There's got to be a creator and they prayed to the creator, and the plague stopped. And they said, we need to honor that. And so they put up this, pla- this, you know, this monument to an unknown God. And I think God prepped them for when the Apostle Paul is going to show up and say, let me tell you about Jesus. That's the intellectual style. That's actually digging in. Uh, thinking about people, thinking about culture. How do we relate? How do we, how do we connect? There's the interpersonal style. That's Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He hung out with kind of the, the, those on the margins of society. And what does Matthew do when he comes to Christ? He, he has Jesus and the apostles get together with some of his tax collector friends, his, his you know, sinner friends, that's kind of how they were known. They were the notorious sinners. And they just had Jesus and them interact. Now, they probably kept a good eye, Matthew, on Simon the Zealot, because Zealots used to would kill tax collectors. But now he's with Jesus, so Simon did better, you know. But there's this interpersonal, let me just connect my non-Christian friend with my Christian friend. Let me just kind of try to start building a bridge. And then there's the invitational style. You just saw a dramatic example of it with the Samaritan woman. What does she do? Once she meets Jesus, she's like, I've got to go tell everybody. She goes to her village and she tells them and she's humble. She's like, hey, this guy told me everything I ever did. And they're like, really? Wow. Because she was kind of the scandalous woman in town. And to me, it kind of amuses me, to be honest. Those apostles went to that same village. These are the professional evangelists. Did they bring anybody back to meet Jesus? No. But this woman, using the invitational style, because she had the connections and at least some relationships, she brings much of the town, if not the whole town, to hear Jesus. When was the last time you invited somebody to church? Or invited them to some Christian event? Or invited them to some way that they could connect with some other Christian of your friends? This is a beautiful style. Notice that when we look at this, so we see in Jesus that he will go any length to reach the lost. We also see in Jesus that he handled them differently. And I'm not going to go deep on this, but just notice that John 3, 3, so Jesus talks to this religious guy talks to this leader, the successful person. Boy, he gets right at it. You must be born again. Now, you know how offensive this would be to a Jewish religious leader? Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, you must be born again to be part of the kingdom of God. He's telling him, you're not saved. 
Whoa. What? He's very direct. He's very blunt. Matter of fact, you go through that conversation, you know, like John 3, 11 and 12. He's like, you're Israel's teacher. You know, he's explaining some of this. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak what we know. We testify. And, and so he's, he, he really kind of pokes at Nicodemus. He's got to poke through any pride that's there. He's much more gentle with the Samaritan woman. Could, could I have a glass of water? Could I have some water? He comes humbly. He reaches across barriers. Now, he still confronts her. I mean, if you look at um, John 4.18, he says, the fact that you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband, what you have said is just quite true. So he does, you know, they, they both, he deals with them differently, but he makes sure that they both understand they need salvation. They both need salvation. Both the respectable sinner and the renegade sinner. Both the one who's been really successful and the one that the town thinks is slutty. Everyone needs the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs good news. We're all broken. We're all sinners. And notice it's not just salvation. It is the ultimate satisfaction that is found in Jesus. We're saved from something. We're saved from being separated from God for all eternity. The Bible talks about that as hell. But we're saved to something. We're saved to relationship, to a life of purpose and mission and connection with both God and other people. And so there's salvation and there's ultimate satisfaction that's found only in Jesus John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So there's salvation, and there's connection, and there's relationship. It's all there. And with the Samaritan woman, he uses the image of the water. I think it's convenient. He's right there at the well. It's a more arid climate. There's a desert fairly nearby. And water is life. Now, we Americans don't quite get this because we have water on tap. I know the dry cabin people, you can correct me later. I'm aware. But that's a choice. <laughs> Not one I'll make, but that's your choice. But we, I don't think most of us know what it's like to be thirsty. Now, I was on a short-term mission trip in Honduras, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and we were carrying cement blocks up this, I, I call it a mountain. It might have been a really big, steep hill, but we'll call it a mountain. And we're carrying up because we're building a baptistry in this little church in this native group up there. 
And I'll tell you, I've never been so thirsty in my life because we had to you know, carry blocks up and down this hill, mountain thing. And we did it for hours. And you know, we built the baptistry in the little church, and, and it was great. But they had, they had in a cooler with ice, real Coca-Cola. I've never been so thirsty in my life. That was the best Coke I've ever had. And, but understand the real thing is not Coca-Cola. The real thing is Jesus. He is satisfying. He is the water of life. He offers us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us like a stream of life, a fountain of life. And so he says to her, I've got something that will satisfy. And she's like, sign me up. He offers us a deep soul satisfaction, peace, contentment. We actually get to have relationship with God. When Jesus died on the cross in the temple, the most holy place was blocked off by this huge, thick curtain. And the curtain during the crucifixion, it ripped from the top to the bottom this dramatic visual aid where God is saying, I invite you into my presence. Go all the way back, roll the tape all the way back to Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden. You don't get to be in my presence. And he says, I invite you into my presence. And so we see this. Jesus offers us salvation and satisfaction. He, it is the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He, in both these conversations, in both these conversations with Nicodemus and this woman, he points to himself. This is not arrogance. This is accuracy. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot be good enough. You cannot make another path. Broad is the path to destruction. Nice people are on the path to destruction. Only in Christ can your sins be satisfied. Only in the person of Jesus can you have life eternal. You know, this, this kind of coupling of different kinds of people who need God. We see a beautiful Old Testament example. We see a beautiful New Testament example. The Old Testament example is the story of Jonah. And I think most people know the story of Jonah. You have this prophet. He's actually a pretty prophet. He's, he's popular prophet. And God says, hey, you need to go speak to the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh. Well, the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, just think of whatever group you just think are evil and wicked, that's how the Jews felt about the Ninevites. They're like, they're horrible. They had this horrible reputation in war. They were brutal. They were violent. They were wicked. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go preach to them. And he goes running the other direction. Whole story where, he, you know, there's a storm. He ends up being thrown over because he tells them to, you know, I'm the problem. They throw him in the water. Big fish, big whale. Uh, swallows him, he's there for days, spits him up on the, on the beach. And now with you know, seaweed in his hair and bleached from the acid in the stomach, he's really feeling obedient, and he goes to Nineveh. I mean, can you imagine what he looked like? And he gets there, 
And I mean, it's not much of a message. It's pretty short, but he does, he does preach to them. And it's like the greatest revival ever breaks out. This, this whole town repents. It's incredible. He should be jumping up and down. He should be high-fiving people. He should be hugging people. But he hates the Ninevites. So what does he do? He goes and pouts outside the city, hoping God's going to rain fire down on them and destroy them. Well, God's like, no, they repented. I'm going to offer them compassion. And, and Jonah's like, I knew that's what was going to happen. And so you've got the people far from God responding to God. You've got the guy who has all the religious credentials, and he's pouting and grumpy, and you're like, and God's trying to like bring him back into the fold he does a little vine that gives him shade, but then it withers. And of course, Jonah's mad about that. I mean, Jonah's a grump. He's a grumpy, he's a grumpy prophet. And the story ends without a resolution. Like, does Jonah repent? Does he kind of reconnect with God? We don't really know. Now fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus tells a parable. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Really, there's two lost sons. So the one son, kind of the traditional way we view sin, he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Let me interpret that. Dad, I don't care about you. I want your stuff. In essence, I want you dead. And in that culture, at that time, you know, the older brother would have gotten two-thirds the younger brother got, would have gotten one-third. I'm an oldest. I think this is a beautiful system. I'm not sure why it changed. But anyway, that's another story. But he gets his third. They would have had to sell part of the family land. This would have brought great shame. This would have been embarrassing. Now, it's a parable, so it doesn't actually happen. It's Jesus making up a story to make a point. I was told as a kid, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That was the, the phrase. And so he... He, in essence, disgraces his father in a sense. His father's very gracious, gives him the money, goes off, spends it on wild living, wastes it. And then when he's feeding pigs, he's Jewish, remember. This is, this is not good. He's feeding pigs. He's like, you know what? Even the servants in my house are better off than me. And so he comes up with a plan. And the plan is, I'll earn my way back. I'll go back to dad and say, hey, I'll, I'll work for you. I'll be a servant. But before he can get his speech out, when he goes home, his father runs to him. He runs to him and offers him compassion and love and welcome. And you know what we call that theologically? We call it grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor. This is sheer grace. And he gives him a, a ring, it says. That means he's back in the family. It's like a singlet ring. Uh, you know, and kind of marks, has the family mark on it. Um, throws him a party, kills the fatted calf. I mean, it's not like, you know, we have a lot of meat in our culture. We eat meat as a lot in our, in our eating. Them, it was a more of a special occasion. And so he, you know, kills the fatted calf. You would only do that if you're having like a, a you know, a town celebration. So he invites everybody. And then guess what happens? His older brother who's been working in the field. He's been the diligent son. He's been the good son. He comes home. He's like, what's, what's the party? And this is probably the greatest day of dad's life. His lost son is back. 
And you know what? That older son, El Grumpo, stands outside the party. He pulls a Jonah. And he's outside the party like, what? And so dad has to leave the party to come talk to his son. And this son is like, hey, I've, I've stayed. I've worked hard. And he's like, but your brother, he's back. And you know what? Jesus doesn't finish that story either. And we don't know how he responds. Will the older brother respond to grace? Now, I'll tell you, it's interesting. I do individual spiritual plans with people. If you ever want to do one, contact me. And often I will ask, when you hear the story of the prodigal son, do you identify with the younger brother or the older brother? And usually people have a strong connection with one or the other. I'm an older brother type. And so I want, to, I want you to hear this very clearly. You might be successful. You might be religious. You might, you know, life might be going pretty good. You may look at your life and go, yeah, I got a pretty good resume. You're just as lost as the meth addict without Jesus. Perfection is the standard, and none of us hit it. None of us hit it. We all need grace. We need grace. We all need to go home. We all need to be invited home through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make it happen. He's the way. I was reading, um, it was Blue Like Jazz, is a book years ago about, um, the author was talking about his friend Alan, and his friend Alan had been researching successful churches and ministries and nonprofits, and so he's going around traveling, talking to these big leaders that had accomplished a lot, and, you know, asking for little nuggets of leadership wisdom, and I, I love stuff like that. And so Alan said, he goes, you know, I went to, um, it was Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright, and Bill Bright was very successful. Uh, this ministry was amazing, you know, 25,000 missionaries in 200 different countries. He, he writes books. He, he's a pretty impressive individual, Bill Bright. And he said, I went into his big office, his big desk, and he goes, he gave me some leadership nuggets, and it was really good. And he said, but, and Alan goes, but as I was about to leave, I said, he said, what does Jesus mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you? And Bill Bright in his big office behind his big desk wept. Because it was his Savior. He had a relationship with him. He was his Lord. That's who we want to be. I love a poem. I'll just read the end of it. There's no one like Jesus. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, the sacrifice for our sins, the risen Lord who will return for us someday. The big idea this morning is ultimately it's all about Jesus. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. 
Lord, we are grateful for your grace. It astounds us. It ignites us. It changes and transforms us. Lord, I pray that we are channels of it, that we share it with those around us. Lord, thank you for good news. Help us to be messengers of it. This is our prayer in the name of all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.